someone. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to get into this psalm for two reasons this morning. Um, the first is because I feel it's a, it's a really poignant psalm at the beginning of a new year. And uh, I, I know it can be a bit cliche, but actually I find the kind of the turn of the year a really helpful time for reflection when I'm not working or when I'm taking time away from stuff, a time of reflection to think about what's going on in my life and examine something of my own heart and think about ways I need to grow and change in the year to come. And actually this is a biblical practice. The Bible tells us to uh, examine ourselves in various ways, in various places. It tells us to look at our own lives and our hearts and uh, that's part of what it means to walk in continual repentance. You can't repent unless you are able at some point to look in and understand what you need to repent of. You also have things you want to run towards, which God is putting on your heart. And all this is part of that experience that's heightened at the beginning of a year. And uh, this psalm helps us in that. I'm not talking about the kind of changes which are just peripheral and, and relatively superficial, like whether you going to commit to you know, juicing every day or um, you know, those kinds of things, like things which may have some importance in the grand scheme of things, but really, I don't really care. I mean, you can do or I don't really mind. Those things, it's up to you, whatever. I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, people also use this expression in the new year, of new year, new you. And uh, the idea that you can remake yourself um, is not what I'm talking about today, because actually everybody knows it's not it's not really possible. It's, we don't remake ourselves. We, we, um, we struggle to even you know, make our dinners. Or if you're like me, I can't cook. So anything like that. It, we, there, are, there are things that are just beyond our abilities. And remaking ourselves is one of them. But, but this psalm, what it talks about is the very deepest um, currents or movements of your heart. The, the most important things about you, actually. Uh, that guide the trajectory of your whole life. And what it sets before us are essentially two ways to live. Uh, and I think it, it's, it's, it's the first psalm for a reason. It's the first time it stands at the head of the psalms because it's offering the person who studies and reads and sings and meditates on the psalms an opportunity to think about their life in this strong contrast. Like, which one am I? Where do I sit in this picture of this binary of these Two ways to live. And we're at the head of a year, as the Hebrews put it. You know, the Bible speaks about the head of the year, the start of the year. And this is the head of the Psalms, the start of the Psalms. And I'm offering you a choice. The Bible is offering you a choice. And that's why I wanted to open it up. We're also, in the course of these coming weeks, we're going to be starting a new series. And it's going to be a series in the, the Ten Commandments. Um, I, I've been growing my beard for this moment because uh, <laughs> this is my 
Charlton Heston opportunity. We're going to be opening up the Ten Commandments, which have um, guided cultures and societies and changed the world beyond measure. Um, And I want to open up to you what they mean for us today um, in the coming weeks. But it seems appropriate that before you get into that, you start a little bit further back and think about the reasons why. And the reason why it's important to look at and understand the Word of God and the law of God and what it does to us and how it changes us. And and that's what this psalm speaks into. So that's where we're going today. And what this psalm does for us in offering us these two ways to live, it doesn't really give you a reasoned argument. It doesn't lay out logical steps of, of why you need to live a certain way or not the other way. What it does for you is it paints a picture. It, it paints a verbal picture of the kind of person you can become. And uh, I think there are actually three pictures in here. Two are very obvious, but I, I, wanna, I want to speak to you about the chaff, the tree, and the man. The chaff, the tree, and the man. And uh, we're going to open up what those three things are about. First of all, then, the chaff. He says in verse 4 that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. This is the negative image. What's chaff? Chaff is a byproduct, really, from growing crops, from growing wheat in particular. That The grain of wheat has a husk around it. And as you harvest wheat, what you do is you need to get rid of that husk in order to, to keep the seed, which is the useful part, which becomes flour. The ancient people had a, a way of beating it and throwing it in the air. And as they threw it in the air and beat it with sticks, the, the seeds the, would fall out and the chaff, which was the husks, would blow away. The closest I get to this is when I grind coffee. Do you ever, if any of you grind coffee, you get little bits which blow in your eyes if you have the mistake of getting too close from around the coffee bean. But this is chaff. Chaff is the worthless byproduct of a crop. It's, the, it's weightless, light, and of no use or value in any way, shape, or form. Now, I need to be clear that when the Bible's describing certain people and certain kinds of lives as being chaff-like, it's never saying that your life could in any sense be worthless. That wouldn't be true and wouldn't sit true with any part of Scripture anywhere. The Bible says that even, even the wicked, God loves. That God loves the world. That God's love is that he sees his image in all of us. And that your life can never be considered worthless in that sense, ever. It's also, and this is very important, it's not to be confused with the ways that we measure worth in modern 21st century life. You know, the ways that we apportion worth are so far from the way the Bible does. Remember when the King David, before he was king, when he was just a shepherd boy, was found by the prophet Samuel, that what God says is that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this was why God chose this, this runt of a boy who was in the field shepherding sheep to be the king of Israel. God looks at the heart. So we can't understand this chaff thing to have anything to do with your outward appearance, your success in the city, your wealth, or your 
achievements to date in worldly terms. It, doesn't, it hasn't got anything to do with that stuff. But what it does have to do with is it's really a tragic picture of the possibility of living a life that is essentially wasted. The possibility of living a life which has no eternal value or fruitfulness, the product of your life for eternity. Paul talks about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 3, when he says that there are different ways to build. He says that you can build on a foundation of gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. And I'm sure he was thinking about Psalm 1 when he wrote that. He says that each one's work will become manifest, will be shown, because the day, which is the final day, will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire. Fire will test what sort of work each one has done. I was using verbal pictures here. But what he's trying to say is basically there's, there's a refining, there's a kind of sifting that happens in eternity where you, you know, what, what seems so important now is not necessarily important in eternity. And what doesn't seem important now is important to God and in eternity. And you want to be on the right side of that, don't we? So this is what he's talking about. He says, some people tragically live chaff-like lives. Even the most successful among us can be like chaff in God's estimation. And I want you just to understand how that happens to a person. How can you become like chaff? And I want to just highlight a few things. One of them is this, that it has to do with the voices you listen to. Do you see how the psalm opened? He, said, he talks about the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. He's talking about not so much just the company that you keep or the people you spend time with. It's not as easy as that. It has far more to do with what's going on in our hearts in terms of our relationship to our fellow man. What I mean is that there is a desire in us, a powerful desire in us, to fit in. You have to ask yourself questions like this. Whose opinion matters to you at the end of the day? Who do you want to become like in life? Or who are you emulating? Who are your heroes? Because I don't think there's a person among us who isn't to some degree controlled by the fear of man and by the desire to please men, become a man pleaser. That there are people whose who you want to, you want to uh, win the approval of, and that that actually controls a huge amount of the way we behave. Massive amount of the way we behave is controlled by the desire to be approved and to fit in, to, uh, to have that stamp of acceptance by others. And I, when I think about this, I, I think this is perhaps the greatest danger for spiritual life in the 21st century. Because you ask me, what, what is it that Christians in 21st century London are most likely to struggle with? It's not, it's not persecution. You know, there are Christians in other parts of the world where that's true, but that's not necessarily true for us. I mean, we may experience it in a very light sense, but not, not, not really. That's not our greatest problem. And nor really is it the intellectual problem of our faith, that there are just so many people around disproving what we believe. I, I, don't, I haven't met those people. I mean, I have debates <laughs> from people from time to time, but very easily you find that people haven't really thought very deeply about these things and that there's, there's not a huge amount of discussion even going on around whether 
whether Jesus is the son of God or whether Christianity is true or whether he rose from the dead. Most people are just ignoring it, aren't they? So, so then you ask, well, what, is, what are the, the biggest dangers that we face as 21st century Christians? And I, I think the answer is this, that it's this kind of this inward urge to, to just simply to be liked, to, to find yourself one among the crowd, to find that you are moving with the currents and the, the flow of society and that you don't stand out from that, that you are not a reject from that, that you don't, you're not on the outside, that, you're not, that you, the things you believe aren't ridiculous, aren't laughable. That seems to me to be the greatest danger that, that most of us face. Because the world we live in is very herd-like, isn't it? We live in a world where people stampede from idea to idea and belief to belief, and we move with the currents of the age. It's very rare to find people who stand out from that, isn't it? You know, you see this just in the way, you know, when celebrities back big causes, it's never really a surprise, is it, what causes they back, because it's very much in tune with the fashions of the day. I mean, when do you ever hear somebody at the peak of their career stand up and say something that disagrees with the fashions of the day? That would be a really pure motive, wouldn't it? But that doesn't happen. People just move with the herd all the time. And as Christians, we're conscious that some things we believe chime with society and some things we believe very much great with the society we live in. And we don't want to be known for the latter. And that can affect your spiritual life because you start to conform. You start to change your beliefs you start to want to fit in and to go with the flow and that's what he's describing here that there's a person who who is unwilling to be like the righteous man because really what you're interested in is the opinions of everybody around you it's the voices you listen to that's one thing that makes you chaff like here's another it's the way you exert your energies in life what do i mean Well, look at the verbs he uses. He says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Did you notice how? What it seems to be describing is the way that inertia can move in on your life, that you maybe begin with walking, but then it turns to standing and eventually turns to sitting. And what I I think he's, he's trying to paint a picture for us here is that For some of you, you never start a spiritual journey because it seems too much effort and it's easier just to stand still or to sit. And for others of us, maybe you begin in your pursuit of God, but eventually you end up slowing down, standing, and then sitting. It's the universal experience of what I was talking about at the beginning, why new year does not equal new you. Our efforts to change ourselves generally devolve into this inertia. And it's true also of spiritual energy at work in your life. It it may be the reason why you've never really given serious consideration to to Christianity in the first place, that it just seems like too much mental effort to consider changing your whole life and worldview. And so inertia just drags you down and slows you down to eventually you just stop and sit. I'm just comfortable where I am. This is where I'll stay. And I think that this highlights another massive danger for us. And it's rooted in a couple of things. One is that we forget our mortality, don't we, when we are willing to sit still. We forget that life is very short and that there is no time, in one sense, for sitting. I don't mean literally. I mean there's no time 
in a spiritual sense, for sitting still. We forget our mortality. And we're also just so distracted these days by entertainment. Do you know the word amusement literally means to stop thinking? Because to muse is to think, isn't it? And amuse is to not think. Now, I'm not, I'm not against entertainment or forms of amusement. Um, but the reality is that when your life is filled and every crack and corner of it is filled with entertainment and amusement, it's no surprise, is it, that your spiritual life has given way to inertia, to a complete standstill, because you stop thinking. The Bible makes a case for urgency around the things of God. Perhaps you think about the last year and you think, well, I didn't grow much in my relationship with God. I didn't, there wasn't much forward movement that really I gave way to inertia. And I want to remind you of the ways the Bible encourages you to stand up. It says in Jeremiah 29 that if you seek the Lord with all your heart, you find him. Now that is an image of, of desperate searching. Paul talks about his own spiritual life. And this, is a, this man is a spiritual giant, but he says, I beat my body and make it my slave. Lest after preaching to others, I should be disqualified. He doesn't want to stand still and he doesn't want to sit. He's conscious of the need to continually summon his heart to run after God. In Hebrews 12, it tells us to run with endurance the race that's before us, following Jesus, with our eyes on Jesus. In so many places, in so many ways, the Bible paints the picture of this Christian life as one that cannot be characterized by standing still, because when you stand still, you sit, and when you sit, you wilt and die, spiritually speaking. Only the truly committed Lord of the Rings fans will know this, but I have a, this is one of my three-set folio editions of the Lord of the Rings, um, which I bought a little while ago. And uh, in the movies, there's a section from the first book which is completely extracted and, and because really it doesn't really serve the story, but it's in the books. And where, when the hobbits begin their quest, one of the first trials that they face is this ancient forest which has a kind of magic in it and through it which lulls them into a sleep. And uh, Tolkien describes it like this. He says, at last they came suddenly into a thin shade Great gray branches reached across the path, and each step forward became more reluctant than the last. The sleepiness seemed to be creeping out of the ground and up their legs, and falling softly out of the air upon their heads and eyes. I'm not going to carry on reading, because I think it might soothe you into a lovely (laughs) literal sleep. And it would have been the end of the quest at that point. The hobbits, a couple of them nearly die in that forest with the trees just slowly entangled them and swallowed them. 
And friends, that is a wonderful picture. It's in so many fantasies and stories and, and uh, myths, this idea that you can become distracted into sleepfulness and inertia. And the Bible says, wake up. You need to wake up. The chaff life has to do then with the voices you listen to, the energy you exert, and also the beliefs that you fasten onto. What are chaff-like beliefs? I think that the image of chaff is so evocative of what it means to just be carried by the winds. I think so many of us are content to imbibe our beliefs by, from the newspapers, from the metro, from the BBC, and from our friends, and from Facebook, and all the rest of it, and to just move with the currents of the day. But that makes you very much like chaff, because chaff is just carried by the wind. You contrast the image of the tree, of course, which is planted. And you think, how do you become a person who's planted in the midst of an ever-changing world? And that brings us on to this second image, the image of the tree. He says about the righteous man, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Now, if I were to ask you, what is your greatest ambition for your life? I doubt that any of you would say, I want to be like a tree. It's not the first thing that comes to mind, is it? But actually, as you meditate on this picture, I think that you, you realize how rich it is and how powerful it is as a picture of, of the kind of life which is so admirable and so worthy of praise. It's a rich, rich metaphor. Have you ever met somebody who's tree-like? By which I mean that there's a kind of stability about them. It's characterized by wisdom, maybe gnarled wisdom, but wisdom nonetheless. That there's strength and conviction and immovability. This is the picture he wants to paint of the righteous life. And I want, I'm hoping that some of you start to feel something of a stirring. I, could, I want to be like that kind of person. Let me just show you a few ways that you can look at this. In one sense, the, the picture of the tree is about the impact that you can have on others. The impact that you have on people around you. Because chaff is worthless, as we said. It doesn't, you can't eat it, and it's no good for making anything with. But trees, trees offer shelter. They offer food. They offer medicine. They offer oxygen. They offer beauty. They offer stability. We've only come to learn in recent decades how important trees are just for the very soil that we walk on. When you remove trees, the soil blows away. And you ask, if you were to ask me, well, why is the world changing so quickly at the moment? And why is there so much cultural shift and moral shift going on so rapidly at the moment? And the answer is, there aren't enough trees around. That as the trees have been felled and disappeared and died, and, and that there are so few in our society who can be thought of as being like righteous oaks, what we're left with is desert-like, parching, spiritual wilderness it has to do then with the way you impact others being a tree also has to do with your enjoyment of life itself your own contentment and pleasures in life because he says about this tree-like person he says he's, he's blessed which means happy the, what, the word blessed is a spiritual word it's not a very useful one either because no one really knows what it means but the word happy is a much better translation 
Happy is the man who's like a tree planted by streams of water. You get the feeling that the chaff-like life is like dust in your mouth. There's no real satisfaction in it. But to the tree-like life is one in which you can experience contentment in your day-to-day life. That there's joy. And there's joy that's un- that doesn't change from day to day because he talks about this tree being planted by streams of water. So that it's not so much relying on the environment around it, but, but it's drawing on the deep things of God to experience daily joy and daily contentment. Is that true of you? Could you be said to be a person who every day without fail experiences the joy of God in your life and in your heart? Or are you more likely to just be like chaff blown around by emotions from day to day depending on your circumstances? I think that the the picture of a tree is one that evokes this idea of contentment and, and certainty in God of nourishment, regardless of what's going on in your life. You could be the poorest person on the planet and be like a tree planted by streams of living water. But mostly this picture is about God's favor on you. The psalm isn't just a prediction, it's actually a a promise. It says that this person is like a tree that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I think withering is probably the greatest fear of our age, isn't it? People are afraid to grow old and to wither. To wither in their appearance, to wither in their strength. Because in our society, to lose your powers is to be discarded and to be regarded as useless. None of us want to wither. We don't want to become irrelevant. But he says about the person who's planted in God that that can never happen to them. Even as their outer frame wastes away, there's no inner withering. There's no inner withering that comes from hopelessness and the bleakness of despair and rejection and loneliness and uselessness. Because you know something better. You know the living God who made you. Friends, every one of you is going to age. If you live that long, you will age. And your body will wither and your mind will wither. But somehow the promise of this psalm can't be broken. That your life does not have to be a withered life. That the interior part of you does not have to wither when you are near to God. That there is something lasting. Something unbreakable about the person who is planted in God. He says about this person, it speaks of the favor of God on you, on your life. Because he says in all that he does, he prospers. And the word prosper literally means rushes ahead. You know how in life sometimes when you're trying to do something, it feels like every obstacle imaginable is in your path and blocking your way. That is not rushing ahead. But rushing ahead is something that you can experience when God's favor, his hand is on you, such that it seems... That things that should be hard are much easier. And I think that there is a promise here for believers who are planted in God that your life can rush ahead. I don't mean that the ambitions that you would choose for yourself will necessarily rush ahead. But I mean that you walk under the sunshine of God's favor and know his presence. 
and his blessing in your life. And then you ask, well, what makes the tree person like a tree? Because if you think, well, which, which one would you rather be like? Do you want to be like the chaff or do you want to be like the tree? Then you need to be asking this question, well, how do I become like the tree? And the answer that the psalm gives us is he says that his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That somehow it has to do with your relationship with God through his word. Now, I don't think that that needs to be understood in the narrow sense of the way we understand laws, just doing what's right and what's wrong and how to do right and not to do wrong. That would be a very narrow way of looking at this thing. The word law in the Old Testament, Torah, means instruction. It has far more to do with the way you raise a child, the way you, you give them instruction and give them wisdom and teach them how to live. It's a much richer word than the word law in English which is, is very black and white and, and dry, isn't it? And it's not about, as a person, just accumulating lots of knowledge. You know, time and time again, when Jesus was going through his earthly ministry, he encountered men who knew a lot about the law of God. They knew it inside out, and they could quote it by heart. But these men had no spiritual life in them. So it can't be enough just that you're a person who can recite the thing inside out. It's much richer than that. When he says that this person delights in the law of the Lord, what he wants you to understand is that this is a person who has a relationship with God himself. A deep and deepening relationship with the living God. And so these are the questions I want you to think about. Do you know God? Do you feel in your spirit that you are coming to know God with ever deeper knowledge? Do you know and can you sense that your spiritual life is growing and not diminishing? Jesus was clear on this. He said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying that spiritual nourishment, growth, transformation, comes through the living word of God. He says in John 15 that, famous chapter which talks where Jesus encourages us to abide in him to live in him to remain in him so that your whole life is marked by being in Christ he says about he says about this person that they are they they must abide in his word if you abide in me and my words abide in you so there's something strange about this belief this faith we have the Christian faith that it can't be separated from words a lot of Faith systems can. A lot of them are to do with either experience or the direct communion with God in some kind of uh, meditative way. But Christianity is different in that it says that God comes to you through his word. And that's how he changes and transforms you. And of course, as Dan mentioned to us earlier, Jesus himself is called the word of God. The ultimate revelation of who God is. The expression of God's reality in a man, in a person. But you can't know God outside of the word of God. And that strikes some people as odd these days because we tend to think that we associate words with, with deadness and dryness. We don't realize that the Bible says that this book is honey to the lips. It says it's a spring of water to your soul. And that without this, you cannot know God. 
You cannot know what he's like. How would you? Who would you listen to? How would you know God if you didn't know him through the word of God, through his own communication of himself to you? If this is true of human interaction with people you can see, how much more true is it of the God that you cannot see that he must come to you and reveal himself to you through his word? And there's an interesting word in here where he says on his law, he meditates day and night. I don't know how you understand what that means. There's a lot of talk these days about meditation. But when the Hebrews spoke about meditating, the word they use, which is the Hebrew word hagar, meant to utter and to speak and to mumble. It depicts a person whose mind is not flitting around to every momentary distraction, but who chews on truth, recites it to themselves, reads it out loud, thinks deeply on truth, to the point where not only do you know it up here, but it sinks deep into your heart and starts to change you from the inside out. That's what the Hebrews understood meditation to be. And it's much richer than reading. And it's much more contentful than the way modern people understand meditation. It's an inner rewiring that takes place as you start to imbibe and to consume God's word. So there we have the two main pictures here of the chaff and the tree. But I want you to, to bring you to a third image here of the man. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And I want to ask you, did you think about the question, who is this man? That might strike you as an odd question, because obviously the way psalms like this work is you think, well, it's, it's a representative. It's whoever does this thing is the man. And I think, well, in one sense, yeah, that's true. We can all be the man in that way. But actually, when I think about it more deeply, the reality is this doesn't describe anyone I know. It doesn't describe me. I'm not the guy who delights in the law of the Lord continually. It doesn't describe you, at least not to my knowledge. It doesn't describe anyone I know. Paul said it about himself. He says, I delight in the law of God, but in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He's describing this universal problem that we all have. That you may aspire to being like this guy who delights in the law of God, but the reality is you are torn. You're fractured in your, in, your, in your spiritual life. That as much as you maybe love God and want to grow in your love of God, the truth is, none of us can be this guy. Not completely. I don't delight in God's law when I don't understand it. 
but just frequently. I don't delight in God's law when there's a part of my spirit that just doesn't agree with it. And that's shocking. Well, no, because I'm a, I'm a product to some degree of the 21st century. And unfortunately, the 21st century is not shaped by God's word. It's shaped by many other things. So why, of course, there's going to be parts of me that internally just wrestles with and doesn't agree with it. Am I at that point delighting in God's law? I don't think so. And I'm definitely not delighting in God's law when I realize that I don't fulfill it. When I find that it is a weight on me when it strikes me down. When I read Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and they cut me to the heart and I realize how lustful I am or how jealous and, and angry I am or how, how easily I can give way to lying or these kinds of things and, and Jesus exposes my heart and he does it to all of us, doesn't he? Are you at that point delighting in God's law? Are you this guy? I don't think so. And then I remember that there was only one man who can really be said to be the blessed man who doesn't walk in the way of the sinners, who delighted in the law of the Lord without fail, and who ultimately can stand in the judgment. And I remember that Christ is the man. That in the deepest sense, that even though this psalm offers before you two ways to live, really it points you to the one man who's only who's lived this way, the right way. Jesus is the man. The only way I I think that I can read the Bible and take nourishment from it on a day-to-day basis, when I see my heart that wrestles with it, fights with it, disagrees with it, or that when I experience the condemnation of the word of God because because it tells me where I go wrong. The only way that I can experience this as nourishment, as streams of living water that change me and transform me, is by remembering that I'm in Christ. That the very definition of what it means to be a Christian is that my life is now hidden to God and that God sees Jesus instead of me. That what it means to be a believer in Jesus is to say, I don't stand before you, God, based on my own ability to fulfill your law. I stand before you as one who's been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And friend, that is how you can know the Bible deeply and more intimately, but find that it is a source of life to you. It's by believing the gospel. By believing that Jesus has totally covered you from your sin. And what you experience when you read the Bible with this gospel-centered way of seeing and understanding. When you're covered with the grace of knowing that Jesus lived the life you couldn't live, that he was the man, not you. When you read the Bible this way, you experience it as food to your soul and as transforming power. So I want to encourage you, friends, Yes, I want to commit, encourage you to commit to knowing God better in this year through his word. I actually don't think there's anything more important that you could do with your time and with your energy. There is nothing more important than that. But I want to remind you that it can only become a delight to you when you know that you're in Christ. If you are not a Christian... Maybe you realize that you don't know Jesus. You don't know the man. 
You don't know the one who lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and died instead of you. Friend, you can know him today. You can know him right now. All you need do is say to him, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to turn from my sin and I want to embrace you. That I believe in you. And you'll find that Jesus rushes in and transforms your life. That it's his power that changes you. It's not new year, new you because of your resolve. It's, it's new life in Christ because his power rushes in and does the things that you've been trying to do but failing to do. It's an inner transformation. And if you think to yourself, I would like that, then friend, there is nothing stopping you. It can be yours. There is nothing difficult in that sense about becoming a Christian. It's as easy as coming to God and saying, I need you. I'd love to end with a prayer now. Why don't we all um, just bow our heads? Because I'm certain that for all of us, there are ways that you want to experience God's transforming power in your life in this new year. You want to be more tree-like than chaff-like. And the right thing to do, whenever you sense the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and the way he starts to speak to you and to encourage you and nudge you and change you, the right thing to do always in those moments is to respond straight away. Never sit on it. Never delay it. Don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. Always, when you feel the Spirit of God at work in your heart, respond in that moment. And it's always the same movement that happens in us. We need to begin with repentance. We say, God, I'm conscious that I feel short in these ways. This is what makes me more like chaff than like a tree. And as you repent, you also then come back to the gospel and say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that my sin is covered by your blood. And Lord, I want to grow. I want to be more like your son. Maybe there are certain ways that you want to make commitments now. I encourage you to do so. I want to leave a couple of moments of quiet. And then Dan's going to lead us in a song. And I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine so we can take communion. But as we just meditate in the quietness and as we meditate in the singing, let's have dealings with God. Come to him afresh at the head of this year, the start of this year.